We're in a series on uh, the book of Acts, and we've titled our series The Church on Fire, which is actually a tremendous metaphor that I want to keep going back to every time I share, and that is if you know anything about fires or wildfires, uh, for the most part, if they're out of control, that means you can't control them. And they, see what I did there? The, it's important to understand that because I think sometimes in our Western culture, in our Western world, in our technological society, we think we can control a lot more than we actually can. And I think it's a good practice for us to, to examine books like Acts that don't seem to have any players that have a whole lot of control over what's going on. Um, I know this may not be widespread information, but my wife and I were part of starting a church uh, 13 years ago, and I've been asked over and over again, what, what was my philosophy or my plan or our plan in planting this church? And I said, my motto was don't quit, and that's about it. And from there on, most of what happened was stuff I would never do again, stuff that I did not have any preparation for, and stuff that I didn't enjoy as we were going through it. Uh, So when someone says, what would you do differently? I'm tempted to sarcastically say, just about everything. But that's actually indicative of how God's Spirit sometimes works. And in fact, I think... As, disciple, as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ, this is something I think we might want to get used to. We should start preparing ourselves a little more if we want to follow Jesus. If we as a church, if Mission Hill Church wants to follow Jesus in his mission, then, then we should get, just get used to having our plans change, having our ideas shifted, having things come up that we may not enjoy, expect, or even know what to do with. And guess what? It's all according to God's plan, and this, this is what he wants to do, and this is what he will do. And the reason why I say that is if you're like a linear thinker, a type A thinker, and you want a five-year plan of how ministry goes, I can tell you this right now, that very few, if any, of those ministries that Aaron just talked about were plans five years ago. And in fact, I would argue maybe none of them were. But as the Spirit has led, we've simply followed We've simply said, okay, this is where our church will go. Now, I want to read to you what seems like a haphazard uh, uh, text in Acts chapter 19. And it will make its, this haphazardness will make its apparentness as we go through. Apparentness, I just am making words up as we go. So Acts chapter 19, I want to read it for us. We're not going to deal with all of it, but we should have all the stories in our minds. Starting in verse 1, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. But on hearing this, they were baptized then in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. 
And he entered the synagogue and and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, the way is the way that uh, the the gospel or the church was described in the early church, the capital W way. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, And their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit Spirit leapt on them all, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house, yes, naked and wounded. If there isn't an audible gasp, I'm a little surprised by that. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Most scholars would say that's about $6 million. Even in today's money, that's a lot. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in amongst the crowd, surprisingly, the disciples did not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. 
Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of, the, of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. That's, that's, some, that's some good action there, isn't it? Um, this is one of the few stories in the Bible that uh, my wife and I had the privilege to see a little bit up at close and personal. We'll show it just in a bit, just as a, a little bit of a teaser, that there is something quite miraculous about what happens in this text. But it does seem a little haphazard, doesn't it? it seems like it's all over the place. Um, who's heard of the word organic? Right? You know, it's, it's funny. I, I looked up this word, and lots of times when things in a church particularly are really disorganized, you use the word organic to describe it. As in, that person's, that's how they described our church plant. <laughs> right? It was disorganized, so they're like, oh, it's, it's, it's organic. But that's, organic doesn't actually mean disorganized or haphazard. Like when something grows organically, you need certain elements, don't you? Right? Like if you say, uh, hey, look, look at your garden in your backyard. Oh, yeah, it grew organically. You would say, yeah, but I, I put the seeds in a row. I made sure everything was weeded. Uh, I made sure it was in the sunlight. I made sure that the soil was tilled and there was proper fertilizer. Like, I put elements in it. I didn't grow the stuff myself. No, of course not. But haphazard? No. It was actually very organized. Organic actually means simply to grow. To grow. And I love, uh, I've been reading, an, an, not an ancient, but an older Dutch theologian, who actually said, this is how God loves to work, organically. Not haphazardly, but organically. Meaning that things grow. He wants things to grow. And I think sometimes when we look at a text like this, we want to quickly take things out and make algorithms of it, that if we just copy certain algorithms that we see in the text, we will get the kind of responses that they got in the text. And I'm here to say, I just don't think that's it at all. I don't think what's happening here is exclusively something we could copy. And for the most part, I think that's a good thing. Because there are ways in which these disciples actually didn't know the future very well. They didn't know this was going to happen. They didn't necessarily like responding. And, and they, they didn't necessarily respond well. But it is what it is. They responded how they did, and God was not thwarted by anything there. 
And so what I think we see in the text is God organically growing his church. Now, he has a master plan that's behind many of these things. But how I want to simply organize the morning is by talking about the difficulties that they faced, the responses that happened, and then how, can, how we can learn some things from them. There are some principles that we can learn, even if there aren't methodologies that we can learn. So first of all, what kind of difficulties they face. Well, in chapter 19, verses 1 to 6, this is actually often used as a proof text for some particular um, theological traditions that talk about having a second powerful experience of Jesus. This, this is a proof text that is often used for that, but I don't think that's the case at all. Actually, when you do some close examination, you see that they're not even Christians, so this is, 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 this is difficult to, to make the case that this is a group of people who have a second experience of Jesus, a second experience of the Holy Spirit, when in fact the answer to the question is, do you have the Holy Spirit? They said, we've never even heard of him. How can that be a second experience of the Holy Spirit? Right? So a simple reading of the text does not allow us to say, this, this is the kind of text that uh, many people maybe put forward as, if, if you want a deeper experience with Jesus, look at what happens in Acts chapter 19. That's the kind of experience you want to have. That's not it at all. What's happening in this text is some doctrinal clarification on who the gospel is really about. What's happening in those first six verses is Paul comes across disciples but these are not disciples of Jesus yet. These are just disciples of John, John the Baptist. Some commentators say this is the, these are the last disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a prophet who really belongs in some ways to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament era. He was the one that Isaiah prophesied would come and level the playing field. But he was the one who he himself said, I am not worthy to untie the sandals of the one who I'm talking about. He's the real hero of the story. That's why when we talk about Christ alone, th this is what we're talking about. The clarification was following the Christian way, the way is about following Jesus. It is not about following a church. It is not about following a theological tradition. It is Christ alone. And sometimes you have to clarify that. Sometimes we say the church is filled full of people who are perfect. I've, I've heard that before. I don't go to church because it's just filled full of people who are perfect. And I've responded poorly to that, and I think I've responded well to that at the same time. But this is the text that actually is the very reason why we clarify the gospel every single week. Because there are people that show up in groups that are disciples, but they're not yet disciples of Jesus. They're disciples of other religions. They're syncretizing other religions that they have, whether they come from Hindu backgrounds, Buddhist backgrounds, Catholic backgrounds, whatever it might be. They might be syncretizing things together, but, but that's not what we're talking about here. Paul clarifies very quickly, did you receive the Holy Spirit? What he's implying there is, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you receive his Holy Spirit. That's 
the simple plain truth. The Holy Spirit does not come later on when you feel super spiritual, when you start leading in a church. The Holy Spirit comes when you believe Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no one who gets to God except through Jesus. When you believe that, you receive his Holy Spirit to do his mission. This is why if you believe that here this morning, you have become one of the great missionaries who are now empowered with the very Spirit of God, the very Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead to do the mission that he has called us to do. This is why we need you to be active in it. Because you have God's Spirit. You have everything that we all have. You have what you need to carry out the mission. This also reminds us that not all gospel work is starting from scratch. You know, I've come across a few people in my time, and they want to do everything to lead someone to Jesus. They want to be the first person to tell them about Jesus. They want to be the person that actually is there when they believe in Jesus Christ. And they want to be the person that disciples them all the way through it. Then they want to be the person that, that helps them disciple other people, the disciples. And the reality is that's just very rarely the case. Paul himself, in his letter to the Corinthians, right? He, this is the, the era that he's writing this very letter, says, hey, uh, I planted Apollos water and someone else is actually going to come along and reap, reap the organic growth that's happening here. Like Paul understands that when you are, just because you are empowered with the Holy Spirit of God does not mean you, you, you are part of every part of someone's life. This should give encouragement f to those of you who say, well, that person moved away before I had the time to actually explain the gospel to them clearly. Or we were just in the middle of discipling and, and, they, and just circumstances took us away. This is the kind of text that says, that's not going to stop what God wants to do through his spirit. Perhaps you've been this part of someone's life and that's all God wants for you. Why? Because there are things that he wants someone else to be part of their life for. You know, I've lost, there's so many times where people in my neighborhood in particular have moved away and I thought, God, what are you doing? We didn't even get to a point where we could actually sit down and, and talk about this and God is reminding me, look at, all I'm asking you to do is what I ask you to do. I'm not asking you to save people. That's my job, he says. I'm not asking you to complete the sale, so to speak. That's his job. And you know what that's taught me? It's taught me my rightful place, is that I'm simply a servant of God empowered with his Holy Spirit for his mission. And he simply asked me to obey what he has given to me, not what he has given to someone else. I am not responsible for obeying on behalf of someone else. I don't know if you know that. Do you know that? That you're not responsible for obeying for someone else? But sometimes we act like it, don't we? We act like this is all on us. If our church doesn't do this and this and this and this and this, then, then, then we can't be fully obedient because we, we have to see lots of people come to faith in order to be a successful church. Here's a text that says, no, you don't. No, you don't. Sometimes you don't even know what's happening. And that's okay. The second thing we see uh, is that um, 
in the kinds of difficulties they face is that Jews and Gentiles respond well and poorly to Paul's preaching. As a preacher, I can say this gives me great comfort. Some people respond very well to terrible, terrible preaching, and some people respond terribly to great preaching. Who's to say? Well, I think the text is very uh, clear about whose responsibility it is. If you, if you look as he enters the synagogue, which is the thing that Paul normally did because the synagogue was a place where Jews and Gentiles, by Jewish law, were allowed to mingle and talk with one another. And as they would, they would talk, in other words, this was low-hanging fruit in the culture. This was a place where people were already excited or interested to talk about things of spiritual nature, especially in terms of the Jewish God, Yahweh, and, and they would move from there. And Paul would go to the synagogue so that he could talk to Jews and Gentiles, both, and explain to them that Jesus is the only way, he's the only truth, he's the only life, he's the way to the Jewish God. Some don't respond all that well. Verse 9 says, They became stumbled and continued in unbelief. And so what does Paul do? Does he keep trying? He actually doesn't. About three months, which is probably two and a half months beyond what I would give, <laughs> he comes to the conclusion that they're actually stubborn. Now that's really interesting that the text says that. It doesn't say they needed more answers. Some of us have been trying to tell people for a long time about our faith that we believe in Jesus, and we can't figure out why someone doesn't necessarily believe. We think it's us, that if we just said things just a little more rightly, if we put it in a better order, if we had a better program, maybe they would come to faith. Sometimes the reality is people are just stubborn and they don't want to believe. That's the reality. This should help comfort those of you who feel like sharing your faith is a lot like banging your head against a brick wall. That sometimes it is stubbornness. Sometimes there is just unbelief. I've had a few conversations with people where I've actually said outright to them, I really don't think you need more information. Now is the time where you either believe or you don't. I don't think you need more information. Sometimes it's actually a waste of time to try and give more information. Oh, well, if I, if I could just prove Jesus in this way or if I could just prove that God exists this way, uh, sometimes it's just unbelief and stubbornness. And you know what Paul does? He moves on. He actually says, you know what, disciples? This is a toxic place for you, the synagogue, because uh, one of the reasons why he knows this is they're not interested in talking to Paul, they're interested in ridiculing Paul. It says, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. That, those words are like slander or, or being rude. And, and I've had those conversations too. I remember on the job site having a conversation with someone, and the reality is there came a moment in the conversation where I realized, I think this person really just wants to fight. I don't think they want to listen. You ever had that? It's kind of like reasoning with a three-year-old, right? At some point you realize, no matter how well I put this, they're still going to stomp away. 
And you just have to accept that fact, understand that in order to be sane, actually. I, I think there's some room here as Christians to say there are times when this has nothing to do with our ability to proclaim the gospel well and everything to do with people's hard hearts. It should break our hearts, but it should not make us angry because we couldn't soften their hearts no matter how hard we tried anyways. And this is intended to show us that this, this happened to Apostle Paul, who I might argue is one of the better proclaimers of the gospel, the more successful missionaries, so to speak. Now, thirdly, we see Jewish exorcists try to use the Holy Spirit's power unsuccessfully. This happens as well. This is kind of a, I don't want to say fun text, but boy, is it interesting. I mean, there's not a lot of prayer meetings that people leave like naked and bruised after, right? If you're walking out of the prayer meeting and guys don't have their clothes on and they got bruises, you probably ask a few questions like, what kind of prayer meeting was this? And I'm not sure what to make of everything in this text. It's, my hope is it's not really duplicatable. And I don't think that's the point. I don't think this is going to happen on a regular basis. I think it happened. It might have happened more than once. But I think, I think Luke, as he's recording this, is going, are you serious? Like, this really happened? Uh, now, uh, Leslie and I were actually on the, the street uh, that probably was where these guys were running. And it's pretty public. It runs right through the center of the city. It would be akin to like McLeod Trail. So if you saw seven guys running down McLeod Trail with no clothes on, you probably wouldn't assume it was because of a bad prayer meeting. <laughs> but what you have are Jews who do not believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but they want the power that they see Paul have. That's why you have uh, verse 11. God was doing extraordinary things. Paul was a tent maker, which means he probably worked with leather a lot, and it doesn't smell good, actually. There, there's, 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 well, leather smells great, but the process of dyeing leather does not. Uh, it, it would, it, your dye gets on your hands. It's a messy, messy work. And so what this text says is for some reason, and even Luke agrees, this is extraordinary. This is not, this doesn't really happen very often. But the, the tools, the apron that Paul was using happened to touch someone who was sick and they got healed. So there were miraculous things that were happening, and I'm sure there were Jews who were exorcists, as we say. They were casting out demons, and they were like, I could use some of that power right about now. You can see how this would happen, right? And this does attract people to the church sometimes when you see supernatural, miraculous things, and particularly when people are very sick or very ill and they've exhausted every other resource, they sometimes turn to the church and they sometimes turn to the aspect of the church that promises them, them radical healing and transformation. Now, what happens is, not Paul like sorting through this, but essentially the demon doing the talking, saying like, I know I know Paul works for Jesus, but 
where's your business card? You don't believe in, in the Holy Spirit. And this shows you that what Paul was doing was not magic. This was not Paul's magic. This was not him doing special ministry of any kind. This was not him having a healing service. I'm not sure he was even involved in this process of healing. This was God miraculously choosing to work like this and someone trying to take advantage of it and God saying, no, you will not take advantage of my Holy Spirit. I give my Holy Spirit to those who believe in my name, not to those who just want my miraculous power. This still happens, by the way. People show up to churches not because they want to believe in Jesus, but because they want to believe in everything else that goes along. They don't have enough friends, so they, they come because they think they can get more friends, or they can get wealthier, or they can get healing. And this is an important thing for all of us to hear, that if you want Jesus Christ, you can have him. But if you want other things without Jesus Christ, you won't get him. And I'm, af I'm, af I'm afraid of what you might get. I hope you don't get this. But this is, this is a way of saying, God is not someone to mess with. Although he gives his Holy Spirit freely to those who believe in his name, he does not give the Holy Spirit willy-nilly. He does not give the Holy Spirit and, and walks away. He's got a purpose for giving you his Holy Spirit. The last story which we've got to go through is most interesting. Um, you notice Paul isn't really talking a lot in these particular texts, but he sends everyone ahead of time and someone, as he's talking, somewhere in the whole process, someone comes to him or someone rallies the crowd, so to speak, and, and in that particular culture and the way those cities were built, it wasn't that difficult in some ways to gather people. But he basically starts to slander Paul and kind of tell half-truths about Paul's gospel proclamation and, and not-so-truths, meaning that Paul did say things like, uh, the God that you're worshiping isn't really the God but he's, he's not trying to turn people against the city powers. He's trying to, to provide them with the freedom that comes with the gospel. Now, this, this is an amazing story because it sounds a lot like what could happen today. A bunch of people show up and they don't even know why they're there. <laughs> I haven't been to very many rallies, but I've been to enough mobs, so to speak, that weird stuff happens at mobs, doesn't it? Group think is, is a weird, weird thing. And sometimes people are yelling and screaming about something they don't really know, right? I've taken my kids to sports events where I jump up and cheer and they jump up and cheer and I'm like, do you know what you're cheering about? And they're like, absolutely not. I have no clue. <laughs> but I'm yelling and screaming and waving my hands because that's what everyone's doing. That's what we have here. And if you think this is just hyperbole, I want to show you the, the few pictures, or a couple of few pictures that I have. This is actually my picture. That is our group there. We sang the doxology. This is the Colosseum where this happened. It is massive. It is about 4,000 people short of the Saddle Dome. 
Now, where I am standing, they could hear me perfectly. So the acoustics are unbelievable. It was quite something to sing the doxology. It's really hard to capture in that sense, but it, I couldn't get it in the picture properly. If the next photo kind of shows from the side to, to show how high it went, and right about here, by the way, is the public street that these guys would have ran naked down. So uh, you can imagine the enormity of what's happening here. This is going public. This is far more accessible than social media. And if you can imagine that whole place filling up with people screaming, great is the God of our city. You're like, Paul, what are you thinking? No, you're not going into this crowd. You're not going to give a debate about how Jesus is the only way. This is pure chaos. You see, Paul actually, I think, had the courage to go in front of them, but they said, there are times when it's just not worth it. Why? Because it's not a discussion anymore. It's a mob. It's a mob. This is no longer just disagreeing. And and what were they disagreeing about? (laughs) Essentially, they were going to lose their work. They were going to lose their jobs. It had nothing to do really with religion. I know it says that in the text, but Demetrius is what they call a, a, a demagogue. He uses very slick speech for political purposes. I know you've never met a demagogue in your life, right? <laughs> this is what happens politically today, right? Very, very slick. Sometimes to the point where you're like, well, this sounds kind of right to me. But it wasn't. Now, what, what can we learn from this? Uh, what happens as a result? I think all of these things could maybe or will happen to us as a church and not necessarily that we can be prepared for them as much as when they show up, we can say, oh, that sounds about right. That there will be p- people that show up to Sunday mornings. They will show up to small groups. They will show up in people's houses and they need doctrinal clarification. By doctrinal clarification, I don't mean a long discussion about uh, something that only a person who has a four-year degree can understand. I'm talking about Jesus is the only way, Jesus is the only truth, Jesus is the only real life. That kind of clarification. This will happen. That I believe that God's Spirit will bring people into our midst who simply need that clarification and they need it over and over again. Because I don't know about you, but we forget so many things. We probably forget more than we'll ever learn. This is why you need to support this. This is why you need to understand this. This is why you need to know for yourself that it is Christ alone that gives you salvation, not your works. Your works come as a result of what Christ alone has done for you. It is not about what you do. It is about what God has done for you. We have to clarify this week in, day in, day out as a church family. And guess what? Two years from now, we're still going to be doing the same thing. Ten years from now, Lord willing, we're still going to be doing the same thing. And you are involved in that. We see also that God's word spreads through, let's just, let's just say strange circumstances. Let's call it that, hey? Strange circumstances. Uh, 
this exorcism leads to, leads to a strange fruitfulness. It's not really good methodology as a church. Uh, hey, let a, let, a, let a demon beat a bunch of people naked and, and then see what happens, see what the Lord does. But that, that's what happens. Because as a result of that, but I, I would say not purely as a result of that, I think there was some of Paul's preaching as well. There were some people who willingly just came forward and said, you know what, I have been practicing magic and it's wrong and I want to stop. <laughs> and my expensive book that has all the incantations, let's translate in my book filled with crystals and essential oils and magic spells and Wicca, I want to burn it. I want to get rid of it, and I want to follow Jesus. I mean, do you see anything in the text that clearly articulates that they need to do this? It reminds me a little bit of the 80s and 90s. Anyone grow up in the 80s and 90s and was a Christian then? It's a miracle that anyone's a Christian in the 80s and 90s. But remember when we used to burn our non-Christian CDs or records or tapes? You guys know what a tape is, right, you young people? A-tracks. A-tracks. It reminded me of that. It was like... Where, where was this, but we did it, and, and I don't want to fault that as much as I want to say, this is what happens when God's spirit actually grabs a hold of someone's heart. They say, this is, this is wrong, I need to stop doing this. This should remind us, some of us act like we're Holy Spirit police, that this is what you should do, this is what you should confess. And this kind of text says, let the Holy Spirit do his job. Let him convict The, the amount of money that was wasted here, $6 million. Even today, that's a lot of money. I think that's more money than I make in a year. It's still a lot of money, right? And for some reason, they decided it, this, this has more value being burnt than just being given away. This means God actually changed people. This means God actually helped them to see that it wasn't magic that was the real problem. It was, it was their idolatry that they thought they could control everything in the spiritual world through what they said and what they did. And when they realized that there was a Holy Spirit who was over all, they said, we, we want to be on that side. We want to believe in the Jesus who gives that Holy Spirit. Sometimes there are people who come to faith in Jesus Christ and it has nothing to do with us. I think more and more at Mission Hill, I'm hearing stories of like, I have no idea why you're part of this church family. There's no right reason for you to be here, but you are. There's no right reason for you just to turn from what you were doing to choose Jesus Christ, but you do. And rather than try and duplicate that or mimic that, we should just celebrate it. See, this is just God doing what he does. This riot leads Paul to move to Macedonia. Surprise, surprise. He's like, well, maybe my time here is done. Doesn't say there was a prayer meeting. I'm not sure he needed it. Disciples were like, pretty sure you've uh, outstayed your welcome here. You got a mob yelling at you. Uh, you had to move to a rented hall to talk about Jesus. 
Maybe move and talk to some of the other disciples for a while. Just let things cool off. Who knows? I don't know if that's what happened. I just know that all those circumstances led Paul to move. And sometimes this happens to us. I want to remind you again that some of the things that Aaron talks about in terms of even the different ministries, like Craig. Uh, Do you know why we support Craig? Well, well, there's actually a family connection to Aaron. That's how some of this started. Do do you know why we're helping the Ukrainian church? Because a bunch of Ukrainians showed up to our church. Do you know why we're helping Wes Hind in the Northeast? Because Aaron and I both have a relationship with him and it seemed like the stuff we have as a church was helpful to where their church is at. And so what's happening in the future? I don't know yet. This is why we need to, lastly, pray. We don't call you to pray just because Christians should. That's a weak way of calling you to pray. We call you to pray because if God works this way, then we do need his direction and instruction to understand which directions to follow. We want people to gather with us to pray, not because we need more larger prayer meetings, but because we need to recognize as a church that we can't do anything without God's Holy Spirit empowering us. That's why we do it. We need you not just praying Sunday mornings when you gather. We need you praying all the time. We need you praying at your home, with your families, with your spouse, with your daughters, your sons, your grandparents. We need you, do you know what prayer really is? Prayer is simply saying, God, I don't know what to do, but I know you do. That's what we're talking about here. Do you know why Paul could do all of these things? Because he knew that none of his successes were ever him. But there was simply the Holy Spirit of God at work in him. And he said, as long as I'm alive on earth, I'm going to preach the gospel, do what I know how to do, and depend on God to do everything, which was most of it, that I can't. I think this shows us that God is the author of our story. He's not just the author generally. He's the author of specific churches. That means that Mission Hill Church is not just an accident. It's not just a brand. It's a child of God that he designed specifically to serve in Calgary in 2023. And the kinds of people that he brought to be part of this church are part of that specific mission. That should relieve us of so much, so many things. Should give us so much freedom to just follow God and not have to try and copy other churches, not have to be as big or as small as other churches, not have to do all kinds of programs like other churches, but simply to seek God, find out what he has for us, what he places for us, and follow him. And I know that's difficult in today's world because we want algorithms, we want quick solutions, we want the success of everything else, but here's a text that says, you, you couldn't do it anyway. So how about you don't try and use trust? We can expect, too, that along the way, we won't get it all right. 
So there's going to be some ministries that just, they don't necessarily make sense to us. They come, they go. We don't need to worry about it. We can expect that there's opposition. We can expect that there's success based upon God's Holy Spirit. But at the end of the day, friends, you should see that God is an organic God who wanted to teach very specific things to these people at this particular time. And he wants to teach us some stuff as we go, as we are on mission together. If you believe that, would you pray with me as we just again ask for God's guidance of his spirit. So Holy Spirit, we, we ask you like they did in this text. We ask you to guide us as, as our future ahead of us is in many ways uncertain. It's unknown. It's perhaps far more difficult than we can imagine. Would you teach us as a church family and as individuals not to depend upon ourselves and our slick programs or fancy words, but actually just your Holy Spirit who has gifted us with everything that we need to be everything that you want us to be. Teach us also not to miss out on the things that you want to teach us about ourselves and our church as we go. That we would not miss that you are not just here, you have not just given us your spirit to use us, but you have given us your spirit to know us. That's what's most important to you. Would you teach us not to miss out on that, Jesus? We ask for these things to press home in our hearts as we follow you. It's in your name we pray, amen.